This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Are you looking for a career change, but worry that you'll face difficulty trying to get your first job in closure? Do you have a limited functional programming background? Would you like a guided path to learning professional closure? PurelyFunctional.tv's online mentoring has just launched. It is step-by-step online mentoring, taking you from closure dappler to professional. Sign up with the link PurelyFunctional.tv geekery to get 50% off the first month. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, Compose Conference will be taking place Thursday, February 4th, and Friday, February 5th of 2016 in New York City. Compose is a conference for typed functional programmers focused specifically on Haskell, OCaml, F-Sharp, SML, and related technologies. To find out more and to register, visit www.composeconference.org. On February 18th and 19th in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place and registration is now open. Visit lambdadays.org to find out more or to register and make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off registration. Right after that, on February 20th, Closure D will be taking place in Berlin. Closure D is an independent non-profit conference from the Closure community for the Closure community. Focus points will be interesting developments and ideas in the global closure community, as well as introductory level talks highlighting the fun aspects of learning and messing with closure. Visit www.closured.de to find out more. Elixir Days will be taking place on March 4th in St. Augustine, Florida. Elixir Days is a one-day conference with a nearly full day of talks and a helping hack session to close it out. The CFP is open through January 15th and early bird registration is currently open as well. Visit elixirdays.com, that's elixir, D-A-Z-E, dot com, to find out more. Interlink Factory San Francisco will be taking place on the 11th and 10th of March, with training on the 7th through the 9th of March and the 14th through the 16th of March. Tickets to the conference are available now, and the very early bird rate is available until December 28th. Visit www.erling-factory.com slash sfbay2016 to register and to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Professor Philip Wadler. Professor Wadler, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? I am the professor of theoretical computer science at the University of Edinburgh. And I'd heard your name around, and I first got you at a little stand-up for academics presentation that you did that got put out on YouTube. And I've followed some of your talks since then at various things like Strange Loop and other conferences. So I wanted to get you on and just talk about some of that work you're doing from an academic perspective and how you got into functional programming. So what was your background in and how did you get into being the lead of computer science? So I did my undergraduate work at Stanford, and that meant I was lucky enough to take a class in Lisp programming from John McCarthy. So I've been a functional programmer pretty much ever since then. And that sounds like a good person to actually take a Lisp course from. 
Oh, yeah. So I'm sure there were a lot of... uh, So as soon as you got into McCarthy's thing, you got the bug and you just didn't stop since? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I've always been interested in programming language design and always been interested in functional programming languages and always been interested in the interface between mathematics and computing, trying to make use of mathematics to come up with better approaches to doing things. How can you know that you're doing the right thing? Well, one way is you deal with it empirically, and that's quite a good approach, but that's very difficult to apply in the programming language field. There's relatively little empirical research. It would be good to see more. And then a different criterion you can apply is, well, are there actually some theorems here that tell us that we're doing the right thing? And so that's another way forward and actually has been more successful, I think, so far than the empirical techniques, which is not to say the empirical techniques aren't worthwhile. But so far, if you look at scientific approaches, the mathematical techniques have been more fruitful. I think they'll continue to be fruitful. I hope the empirical techniques also become fruitful. Yeah, it seems like the empirical techniques is a little bit of trickiness just because we're a relatively young industry and we're still trying to figure out how to do empirical science compared to the mathematical sciences. Empirical stuff is hard, right? Because um, you want to know which of two programming languages lets people program better. Well, the variations in people are much greater than the variations in programming languages. So there are techniques for dealing with that, but it's non-trivial. And then, of course, if you want to find out by a real experiment, well, the real experiment would be, here, we're building this whole operating system. Let's build it once in C and once in Haskell. And people generally don't have the resources to do that. And especially since it becomes a lot of people problems and just understanding a domain, that can be where a lot of complexity lies outside of that, which is where some of this mathematical proofing of your software becomes interesting that you're involved with. That I'm thinking is one of the interesting reasons it's interesting to get you on to talk about your background and doing these empirical proofs and how you came in and took that mathematics and the computer science and programming aspects and essentially have kind of helped rebring them back together from some of their early origins or at least help popularize them outside of being relatively niche. Well, there, yeah, there are loads of people that, I mean, one of the important things is that there are an awful lot of very clever people developing some very deep mathematics so that if you can then exploit that work to get something that helps you write programs, then that can give you a step up. So an example of that is Eugenio Maggi, working with Gordon Plotkin, came up with some very deep ideas about how to express denotational semantics of programming languages. But you could then take that and transpose it into ways of structuring functional programs using monads. And monads have now become widely used. But that came out of looking at what the mathematicians had done and going, hey, we can use that too. They've got a great idea. Let's steal it. So um, I was one of the people that helped carry out the theft. And that's what I've been impressed with was you're able to take these complex topics that people with a whole lot of math background might not be able to understand at first blush. And with your presentations, I thought you've done a really well job of pulling it down and distilling it so that people who don't have that strong background, they may have gone a computer science background or they may not even had a computer science background. And it's something that 
is made accessible instead of having to go and get a master's or PhD in math just to understand what someone's talking about when they're talking about denotational semantics and all the details around that. Thanks. Um, thank you for the compliment and thank you for being willing to listen. I think very often people who are developers hear mathematics and they think, oh, that's too hard for me. I can't do that. It even sometimes seems to me that it just gets to the point that if you write things in italic font rather than teletype font, all of a sudden people think, oh, that's too difficult. I can't do that. And I think sometimes it's the other way around. If you've got something difficult to do, then using mathematics can make it easier. And it's avoiding the mathematics that's making it hard for you. But there are many people that think, oh, mathematics isn't for me, and they just turn off when they hear about a mathematical approach. So I hope to encourage more people to think, well, maybe mathematics is for me. And there are many people out there taking the mathematics and putting it in a form that people can use. And I hope more and more people will exploit that. And it's one of those things, at least in my perspective, of I don't necessarily have a strong math background. I had a decent math background going through and taking an actual computer science degree. But it's one of those things I've realized that even early on when I was playing with it growing up as a kid was programming is a lot of just mathematics, just phrased in a different syntax, essentially. And then trying to make that mapping of, okay, well, what are the mathematical terms for what I am doing? And some of those I'm still stumbling upon as I don't dig into them enough, frequently enough, of things like the functors and applic applicatives and monads and monoids to know which one is what in what case, but I've kind of got an understanding of some of the general patterns. But I think what's interesting about you is the way that you're bringing, folding in the history as well and saying, we've got this long history of both mathematics and computation and how they kind of interact and overweave with just logic in general, because mathematics and software are all about logic there are essentially two sides of the same coin, it seems like, in a lot of cases, at least when we're trying to solve business problems. Well, mathematics is sort of a general approach to reasoning, and I would say that logic is included within mathematics, although many mathematicians would not say that. They put logic to one side. But there are very similar forms of reasoning involved in each. And then propositions as types is about the idea that logic, on the one hand, and computing, on the other hand, are two sides of the same coin. And that many things that have a logical interpretation as, say, proof rules and natural deduction, also have a computational interpretation, say, as type rules for lambda calculus, or for a programming language of your choice. And those roots can give deep insights, I think, into how to design things. So very often, it's hard to know if you have a good design or not. Currently, I'm working on concurrency. And there are many, many, many different process calculi, many of them with mathematical roots. And how can we know what the best one is for writing distributed and concurrent programs? It's a difficult question. So one way is you could do empirical experiments and see which work better for people. But that's difficult to do for reasons that I mentioned. And an idea that interests me is recent work has shown that linear logic, which is a variant of logic that's been around since um, 1987, 
seems perhaps to correspond to an appropriate programming language for concurrent and distributed systems. So if that's true, I think that gives you a hint that, oh, maybe this is an appropriate way to do things. And for me, it's just very exciting that you have these ideas that were developed in logic for completely unrelated reasons, and then they turn out to be absolutely perfect as programming languages. How wonderful and exciting is that? Right? The great thing about being a scientist is you can go out and find beautiful things sitting out there in the world, and I think this is the most beautiful thing I know of. And it almost seems one of those discovery versus inventions kind of things, that this is something that was discovered, there seems to be a truth in here, versus I'm making something up, and it may be an invention, but it's also rooted in discovery as well. So that the duality of some of those things and how those things play out is an interesting thing to see from an outsider perspective, from someone who's not doing the research, and say, this was done, but look, this was also discovered, is there something that's a common thread and how did they wind up discovering it if they actually thought they invented it? Um, so what has to be careful. So I came up with this phrase discovered versus invented for this talk you refer to propositions as types as a way of getting at this idea that there are things that were done for completely independent reasons that turn out to be useful to computing and that that's just in the, for me, an incredibly exciting idea. I want to share that excitement with other people. Some people have taken that as denigrating the idea of invention, and I don't think that's helpful. And I don't think debating which things are discovered versus which things are invented is helpful at all. But what I think is helpful and what I would like to share with people is this idea that, hey, there are things out there that are useful for us as computer programmers that were developed for completely different reasons and have a lot of internal structure and elegance and beauty on their own. And let's go out and find those things and exploit them. And I, sorry, I wasn't applying your discovered versus invention. I was thinking just more in the broader history of the sciences where you have people creating these inventions, but then realizing that this thing, after they've seen it in the world, actually kind of propagates throughout nature as well. It's like, oh, there is a fundamental truth here. Uh, some of those things like the golden ratio and things like that, where people have come up with this and kind of, I've come up with this, and then it's like, oh, you look at it and see it's replicated across nature all over. So there's something more to than just this person coming up and figuring this out on their own. It's more of a global truth. Right. When you have multiple people independently coming up with things and then they turn out to be the same thing, and that is what I call a discovery. And I don't want to fight about the words, but just as you're saying, this is exciting. Different people have found the same thing for different reasons. And uh, yeah, that's worth getting excited about. And so you're working on this logic stuff now for concurrent and distributed systems and programming and thinking and all that. So what does some of that stuff that you're finding look like? Can you give a rundown of what that current worldview looks like and what you're doing to kind of how you're looking at seeing if that applicability works in software? So, as I said, there are lots of different approaches to dealing with concurrency and distribution. And one of the most successful in the theoretical world has been process calculi. So there are a sequence of these. There was 
CCS done by Robin Milner and CSP done by Tony Hoare, and then Pi Calculus done by Robin Milner. And as I said, there are many different approaches, so it's not clear what is the best one or what works best in practice. And one of the things that was layered on top of this was a type system that essentially corresponds to describing protocols. So we often use protocols in distributed or concurrent systems. And a protocol says something like, well, first I'm going to send you a name, and then you're going to send me a cryptographic key, and then I'm going to send you back a nonce, and so on. So you have some description of things that are going on. So it's very common to be writing down protocols. And Kohei Honda came up with session types, which were a way of layering types that describe protocols on top of Pi calculus. And when he did this, he actually took some inspiration from linear logic, because there are connectives in linear logic that stand for, I am going to make a choice, or I am going to offer a choice. These are one variant of or and and in linear logic. It's a bit different than ordinary logic, so you get two varieties of or and two varieties of and, each dual to the other. And duality is important here, because if you're talking across a channel, if on one side I'm saying, I'm going to send a number, on the other side, you need to be saying, hi, I want to receive a number. And similarly, if on one side I'm saying, I'm going to offer you a choice of two alternatives, then on the other side, you need to be saying, I'm going to make a choice between two alternatives. I'm going to select between them. So this is exactly what Kohei did. He had those four operations, sending a value, receiving a value, offering a choice, making a choice. The last two clearly corresponded to linear logic. The first two just sort of seemed to be hacked on top of that. So that was back in the early 90s, linear logic having first come about in the late 80s. And then all you need to do is wait 15 years. And finally, Frank Fenning and Lewis Karras write a paper pointing out, actually, the send and receive bits, the thoughts, the bits that we thought were just hacked on, you can actually view those as the other two connectives of linear logic. And so it took almost two decades to see this. But once having seen it, you can go, ah, there's a fairly tight correspondence between linear logic on the one hand and session types on the other hand. And session types seem pretty clearly useful for describing protocols. So this looks to me like an interesting idea, where again, we've got something that's very useful on one side and has a deep mathematical history on the other side, and they seem to correspond. So I'm very interested in exploring this. There are lots of people doing work with session types, some of it based in this logical route, and some of it just, hey, how do we use these to actually get work done? And we put in a large grant proposal to the UK government, which got funded. So this is called a program grant. So there are three partners in this grant, Edinburgh, Glasgow, and Imperial. And we're all working together, some of us from the logical side and some of us from the practical side, to work these things out. So one thing I'm particularly excited about this week is that on the practical side, there's something called multi-party session types. So I described two participants, one on each side of a channel. In general, when you're getting real work done, you might have many different parties that are communicating with each other. I'm sure you can think of many examples. Like in a business situation, you might have 
one business that's selling things and one that's acting as a broker. And then you've got the client and maybe you've got somebody else that's providing a service and so on. And you might have a protocol connecting all these things. So multi-party session types are great for writing this down. But the thing that I explained to you involved two-party sessions. And so what's the relationship between the multi-party sessions and the two-party sessions? It seemed to me that the multi-party sessions were useful, but I couldn't really tie them back to these logical roots. And just recently, a group of people, Nobuko Yoshida, who's one of the inventors of multi-party session types, Marco Carbone, I'm not going to get all the names right, have suddenly found, oh, there's something here that looks like a logical interpretation that gives us multi-party session types. So when Fenning and Keras did their work, I sort of looked at it and I said, ah, I think it can be simplified this way and made even better to correspond to linear logic. And I've just been looking at their work and doing the same thing. And all of us are quite excited about it because it looks like finally we can get a proper logical explanation of what's going on with multi-party session types. So we're all quite excited about that. So for those of us outside of academia, how does this kind of look like? Part of this being involved from the outside and being able to kind of follow along and see what comes out of all this research if people are thinking this is interesting. So how does the research end work from your perspective? So first of all, I want to fill in the names I forgot to give you before because it's only fair. So the people, the four people that worked this recent work on multi-party session types are Nobuko Yoshida, Marco Carboni, Fabrizio Montesi, and Karsten Sherman. So I just want to give proper credit there because I think that's an appropriate thing to do. Now you have to repeat your question. I was wondering kind of what does some of this research look like from someone, for those of us who are outside the academic community and how does this research progress? Oh, so this is the nice thing about multi-party session types is they just look like what you would naturally think of writing down if you were going to write down a description of a protocol, right? First, A sends a value of type number to B, and then B sends a value of type string to C, and so on. So it's a fairly natural way of describing these things, and there are actually some business standards that Kohei Honda and Nobuka Yoshida and others were involved in setting up that look pretty much exactly like this. So it's fairly easy to get a tight practical connection with the logic. Okay, yeah, and part that was really kind of getting down to if this is able to be done and people can go find out. So this is something that is already starting to filter down that we outside of academia and industry, if we are interested in these kinds of things and some more formal proofs can start to research and actually apply, at least to some extent. And if it's only just writing it down formally and saying, here's the transactions that are going to happen with this protocol and messages that are exchanged then. Right. And we've got various tools that make use of these things. So there's a language called Scribble that Kohei and Nobopu and others defined. And so you write down your protocol in Scribble, and then there are various tools that work with that. So for instance, you can write a program in Java, and all of the communication operations will be checked against protocols described in Scribble. So the tool that does that is called Mungo, and it was built by our colleagues at Glasgow. And you can do it either with type checking, that is at compile time, you have a type checker that just makes sure that everything always matches, or sometimes that's a bit difficult to do, and then instead you can do monitoring, 
and you can run something at runtime that makes sure that the messages that you exchange correspond to the protocol and log or raise an error if things diverge. This all sounds really interesting. So you said that you've started getting this stuff out. How does one find out more about the ongoing research and the existing research there and kind of keep up to date if this is something that people are interested in? Because I know we have a lot of people here that might be interested in F-sharp or Haskell or some of these other strongly typed systems. And then we have people who are interested in the concurrent and distributed nature. And so if they want to try and figure out how to make some sense of this in either sense and want to kind of go forward, where can people find these resources to be able to find out more and keep up to date with all the stuff that you're doing and all the others that are being built on with all of this stuff? So I mentioned that we've got this government project joint between Edinburgh, Glasgow, and Imperial. I should have mentioned also that Kohei Honda was originally one of the people involved in the grant. He was at Queen Mary. And very sadly, partway through the process of putting the grant together, he died of a stroke. So we were all quite taken aback by that, particularly, um, well, we were all taken aback by it. And in a way, I think of this project as his legacy in his honor that we're carrying this forward because he, he, it was such a great and fertile idea. So then you ask, well, where can people go to learn about this? So the name of the project is ABCD, which stands for A Basis for Concurrency and Distribution. And if you go to my webpage, there's a link there to the ABCD project, and that has links to things that everybody has done. And then we'll, we also will have links from there that take you into the broader research area of what's going on. Simon Gay is leading a European project, which has many partners looking at the more general idea of behavioral types, which include session types, and are about more general ways about, okay, how do we go about trying to say something about the structure of communications and use that as a way of guiding us in building programs. So there's a fair bit of work available. And if people just go to the ABCD website, that will point out to the broader work. That sounds good. And I'll make sure to get all that information and those links, at least the starting page of your site and the ABCD site in the show notes for people so they can go back and reference and dig in for those that are interested. Because this sounds really interesting and it sounds even more applicable with the way that the multi-core systems are starting to explode and cloud providers and everything else where the age of distributed systems are here and it's getting here even faster with just stuff we do and then the whole concept of the internet of things things coming where distributed systems are going to be even more proliferated than they were already and it's going to be something we're going to have to deal with very very soon if we're not having to deal with it already and just to follow up on what i was saying before i mentioned that there's a larger european project the name of it temporarily escaped me but its name is betty which stands for Behavioral Types for Reliable Large-Scale Software Systems. And as I mentioned, Simon Gay at Glasgow is in charge of that. And the Betty team and the ABCD team overlap and work closely with each other. So we've only got half an hour today because it's tight. And I thank you very much for giving the time. But before we wrap up, is there anything you want to plug or promote or make sure people know about in addition to anything we haven't talked about? Um, we barely mentioned the phrase Lambda Calculus. And I guess what I would want to do is encourage your audience, if they've not seen that, to take a look at that. That's the thing that's at the core of functional programming. And if we had vision, I would wave at you 
my fuzzy stuffed lambda that my daughter Leora made for me. And the reason I like to wave this around is people tend to think of theory as something difficult and hard. And I'm always sort of amazed by this, right? Because these are people that have no trouble writing programs in JavaScript. Well, if you can cope with JavaScript or with many of the other systems that are out there, I think you have the right ability and skills to cope with any bit of mathematics that you can bump into. It's just a matter of not being afraid of the vocabulary and learning how things fit together. But if you can learn how to use any of the real systems that are out there like JavaScript, you can learn this just as well. And it's easier to do. So people tend to think of theory as difficult and hard. And I like to wave around my stuffed land as a way of saying, no, no, no. Theory is fuzzy and cuddly and warm, and it will be a sucker to you. That sounds good. And do you have any good resources that you would recommend for people looking at the Lambda Calculus? Ooh, um, there are zillions of basic textbooks out there that are good to go to. But there are many developers out there talking about basic ideas and functional languages and how those relate to the Lambda Calculus. So I'm not going to point at any one of those right now. I'm not. Uh, I don't have any on the top of my head. The only thing I have on the top of my head is rather old now. It's a textbook written by myself and Richard Bird for Haskell called Introduction to Functional Programming. So, of course, being a co-author of that, I think that's a great place to start. But there are many other things out there as well. That sounds good. So where can people find you online if they want to follow along? You mentioned your website. Is there any other places that people should check out just to see what's going on in your world and new developments with what you're doing? I have a Twitter account, very imaginatively named at Philip Wadler. And I have a blog, which is linked from my home webpage. And what I really highly recommend to anybody who wants to be a researcher in the modern world or um, have a webpage or anything is have a weird name. So my last name is Wadler, W-A-D-L-E-R. And it's unusual enough that um, if you type that into Google, you will get to my stuff. So it's fairly easy for people to find me. Well, that sounds great. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Dr. Wadler, for taking your time to join me. I know we were coordinating and you only had a little bit of time. So thank you very much for the time you've given me. It was great talking to you. And I hope to potentially at some point in the future, get you in on a longer episode if you have some free time, whenever that may be, even if it's a couple years down the road and kind of expand on some of these things a little more. So thank you very much for giving your time. And it was a great pleasure talking with you. Okay, well, thank you for your time, and uh, I thank your listeners for their time. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.